Arrive family, let's stand to our feet one more time this morning if you're able to. As we prepare to open the scriptures here, we're going to declare our faith together. Say it with me. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, true God from true, what, say what? I was just testing you. Pass that test. Good job. Eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation he came down from heaven. By the power of the Holy Spirit he became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. For our sake he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. With the Father and the Son, he is worshipped and glorified. He has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy, universal, and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. You may be seated. It is good to see you this morning, New Life East. Those of you that are joining us online, grateful to have you with us. I was up preaching at New Life North last Sunday, so I wasn't with you. Brett Davis filled in for me. So this is my first opportunity to say to you, Happy New Year. And and also to you, right? Or something like that. It's a liturgical version of it. Uh, Happy New Year. It is so good to see you. I hope that you had a good Christmas and New Year's. Uh, Ours was wonderful. We've had family in town. My mom and my dad are with us this morning. Mom and dad, can you wave at everybody? Everybody holler at mom and dad. All right, give it up for them. So good to be together. So we're starting a series this morning uh, called Everyday Prophets, and we're calling them Everyday Prophets uh, because these are the prophets that you don't hear maybe so much about. They're more tucked into the witness of Scripture. We know about the big prophets, you know, kind of the big famous ones. We know about Isaiah, and if you've been reading the Bible for any length of time, you've got favorite passages out of Isaiah. And we know about Jeremiah. Uh, you know, if you don't know anything from Jeremiah, you know Jeremiah twenty nine eleven. for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Right? We know about Jeremiah, and we know about Ezekiel. Ezekiel and some of these staggeringly beautiful, bold images from Ezekiel, the valley of dry bones, the river coming up. We know about the big guys, but then there are these other prophets, 12 of them actually, that maybe you don't know so much about. And maybe this is kind of the place in your Bible where the pages start to stick together a little bit. But there are 12 of them. And throughout Jewish and Christian history, therefore, this group of prophets has been referred to as the book of the 12, which already should kind of perk our ears up, right? Twelve is like this massively important symbolic number in the scriptures. How many tribes of Israel were there? Twelve. And how many apostles did Jesus have? Right? There's twelve. So twelve tribes of Israel tasked to carry the life of God 
and the witness to Yahweh's, to the worship of Yahweh through history. And then 12 apostles who also are taking the message about the worship of the God of Israel now and are transposing it into a new key because of the reality of Jesus. 12 and 12, and then we have these 12 prophets, right, in the middle. So in their own idiom, in their own language, in their own way, these 12 prophets are bearing witness to the life of God. They're preaching the gospel for us as we're going to see. Now, uh, just to refresh our memories a little bit, those 12 prophets, this book of the 12, begins with Hosea, which I'm going to read from and preach from this morning. But we have Hosea, Joel, say it with me, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk. That's how you got to do that. It's a Hebrew way. Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. There are 12 of them. And Hosea is situated really at the head of this whole group. In a way, you could think of Hosea being the Apostle Peter, almost, to the group of all of them. There's this a representative function that Hosea has where so many of the main themes of the book of the Twelve are actually set down in Hosea. Hosea prophesies very early, sometime in the middle of the 8th century or so, and he has this vision of God that is as bold and beautiful as any vision of God presented anywhere in Scripture, which we're going to see this morning. But before we open Hosea, let's just pause for a word of prayer. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you that the scriptural witness is true, that you will never leave us and you will never forsake us, that your presence abides with us. It goes with us now until the very end of time, and we thank you for that. And we thank you that there has never been a moment of our lives where you have not intended our good, where you haven't intended for us to rise up into everything that you've called us to be, into true humanness. And so we thank you for that. We thank you that as the creed declares, the Holy Spirit has spoken and is still speaking through the prophets. And so we pray that this morning, as we open the prophet Hosea and listen once again to the words of this man that come to us now down through the centuries, 2,800 years ago, he prophesied, that we would see these words as being a word for our day and our time and our lives. So do that, we pray, in this space. I'm asking that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts in this place would be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Hosea chapter 1 and verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea. John 1 says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. So whenever and wherever in the scriptural text we see the scripture talking about the Word of God or the Word of the Lord coming, who are we actually talking about? If this is a visitation that Hosea is having from Jesus, though he knows it not. This is Jesus is coming to Hosea here. And so the word of the Lord that came to Hosea, son of Beeri, during the, during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, all of your favorite kings, the kings of Judah, and during the reign of Jeroboam, not so good, son of Jehoash, king of Israel. And when the Lord began to speak through Hosea, this is what the Lord said to him. Go and marry a promiscuous woman. A promiscuous woman. Wait, what? 
well, thanks for this prophetic call, Lord. You know, I don't know if my pastor would approve of this, Hosea must have been thinking. Go marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her, for like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. And all God's people said, when God first begins speaking to Hosea, he tells him to go and take a promiscuous wife. And this relationship that he has with this promiscuous woman is going to be a kind of living parable of the relationship that God has with his people. Now, everybody loves a good love story. You know what I mean? We just got done in our culture watching three months worth of Hallmark movies. You ladies in the house can testify, okay? We love it. You love it. And you're, you guys, I know you were there watching. And you don't want to admit it. But you're going to be taking communion pretty soon. And we're going to do the prayer of confession and all that so you can get it off your chest. I know you have been meaning to unburden yourself. But we love a good love story, you know? The notebook, you know, there's a good love story. That's a nice one. I got any notebook fans in the house, you know? My favorite... Love story for sure. There's not even a close second here. Is a Rocky three? Yeah. I mean that also with all sincerity. It really is a good love story. You know, you know the plot. Rocky he's risen to fame and fortune, and then there's a challenger, Mr. T, and Mr. T takes him down, and he's trying to get back in the game, and Apollo's trying to help him, and Rocky comes to this crisis moment on the beach and he's not sure if he can follow through with this thing to like get his reputation back and that good woman Adrian come on Adrian she gets all up in his face you know if you want to quit quit but at least be honest about it where's the man I knew and the man I loved you know and it's like it's like Adrian's love for Rocky like makes Rocky a better man and they all live happily ever after. We love a good love story. I know you do. Rocky III. You've never thought of it that way, have you? But it really is. It's a great love story. But the reason that we love a good love story, I want to submit to you, is because it speaks to something that we know is true about the, the cosmos. That this isn't just sort of a random the big bang and then it's particles crashing into one another and all that stuff. And our creation is not just about us kind of meandering along on planet earth and doing whatever, but at the heart of everything, I think we believe that it's a love story, that there's a romance at work here. It resonates with us in the deepest ways. And the scriptures talk about the relationship between God and his people as being a love story. The Song of Songs, chapter 2 and verse 10. My beloved spoke and said to me, Arise, my darling, my beautiful one, come with me. All night long on my bed, She says, I looked for the one that my heart loves. The voice of her lover came to her, and it awoke something in her spirit. And so she says, all night long on my bed, I looked for the one that my heart loves. I looked for him, and I didn't find him. I will get up now and go about through the city, through its streets and squares, and I will search for the one that my heart loves. And so I looked for him, but didn't find him. And the watchmen found me as they made their rounds in the city. Have you seen the one that my heart loves? I asked them, and scarcely had I passed them when I found the one my heart loves. I held him and would not let him go till I brought him to my mother's house, to the room of the one who conceived me. The voice of the lover woke up love in her, and she chased him down until she found him. And when she found him, she says, I clung to him, and I wouldn't let him go until I took him to the room of the one who conceived me. In other words, if there's going to be a union here that's going to be fruitful, that, the reason that, if you don't know, 
that the Song of Songs finds its way into the canon of Scripture is not because uh, the Jewish people had this hugely exalted view of marriage, although it certainly was that, but more than that, they had an exalted view of marriage because it spoke to something that they knew was true about the relationship between them and their God. They saw it as a romance. They saw it as a love story that God had called them saying, arise, my darling, my beautiful one. And it was his voice to them that woke up love in them and caused them to run after God. And so the Song of Songs continues. The beloved says, place me like a seal over your heart, like a seal on your arm. For love is as strong, do you know the verse, as death. And its jealousy unyielding as the grave, it burns like a blazing fire, like a mighty flame. Many waters cannot quench love and rivers cannot sweep it away. That, the scripture is trying to submit to us, is the relationship that we are in with God. That there's this burning love and desire that is a kind of ebb and flow, a back and forth in our relationship with God. It's a love story. The story between God and humanity is a love story. But what Hosea sees is that this love story has gone badly, badly sideways. And that same power that was present, that Song of Songs talked about, love is as strong as death and it's jealousy unyielding as the grave, that now the power of that union has broken out like fire in Israel because Israel is misaligned. She's not faithful to the Lord. Look down at Hosea chapter 3. The Lord said to me, go show your love to your wife again. Though she is loved by another man in a, and is an adulteress, love her how? What does the text say? As the Lord loves the Israelites. And so the Lord to Hosea is saying, you want to know what my love for the Israelites is like? It's just like this love that you have for this promiscuous woman that you've married. You love her. You're devoted to her. You have children with her. You've built up a story together. But now she's running off after other men. Well, hey, Hosea, that's how I feel about my people. That I found them and I love them and I put the ring on their finger and we've become fruitful together. We've made a life, but they keep running off. They turn to the other gods and they love the sacred raisin cakes. And so I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and about a homer and a lethek of barley. This is about the price, by the way, of a slave. So Hosea pays the slave's price to get Gomer, his wife, back, who has now become enslaved to these other men. Pays that price. Pays the ransom to get her back. And then I told her, you're to live with me many days and you must not be a prostitute or be intimate with any man and I will behave the same way towards you. So God here is giving a picture of the relationship that he has with his people. That they keep running off and he keeps what? Going to find them. Now, lest we think that this kind of passionate romance, quote-unquote, that God has with his people is really just kind of about the religious part of their lives, Hosea wants to dispel that notion. Look down at chapter 4 and verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord, you Israelites, because the Lord has a charge to bring against you who live in the land. There's no faithfulness, no love, no acknowledgement of God in the land, but what is there instead? Cursing, lying, murder, stealing, adultery. They break all bounds and bloodshed follows bloodshed. And because of this, the land dries up and all who live in it waste away. The beasts of the field, the birds of the sky, and the fish in the sea are swept away. So one of the things that we do 
in modern times is we compartmentalize everything. So we go, I got my religious life over here, and that's one thing. And then maybe tangentially related to that is my spiritual life. Religious life and spiritual life are kind of a different thing. And then I've got my ethical life is kind of over here, my moral life. And then I've got, let's say, my intellectual life is over here. And then I've got my vocational or my occupational life is over here. And then I've got social life over here and political life over here. And so everything for us is siloed, right? The biblical mind knows nothing about these silos. To the biblical mind, everything is integrated. The whole task of the human life is to live in a way that's congruent with reality. And God is the first and foremost point of congruence in the cosmos. So that when we're aligned with him right, we're aligned with everything else right. Just by the same token, when our allegiance, our loyalty, our devotion begins to skew from God, what happens to everything else? It perverts it. It warps it. Which is why when Jesus is summarizing the law and the prophets in the New Testament, he says all the law and the prophets can be boiled down to two things. Do you remember what they are? Love. Come on now. A little Bible trivia here. It's not hard. This is an easy one. It's love what? The Lord your God with all of your heart and all of your soul and all of your mind and all of your strength. And the second is like unto it, he says. Love your, that's right. The whole thing is an ecosystem. It's all bound up. And so when Israel here in Hosea begins to take her allegiance and put it to other things, when she diverts her loyalty, when her heart becomes wayward, it's not just academic, is it? And it's not just about her little spiritual disposition over here. What it does is it has a concrete impact upon all of the relationships that derive from that one relationship under Yahweh God. So what happens when she starts going after other lovers? Well, what happens in the land is that you have cursing, lying, murder, stealing, adultery, bloodshed, following bloodshed. And more than that, it doesn't just have a social impact. But Hosea actually believes that their unfaithfulness to God has had an ecological impact. He says that because of this, the land even dries up and all who live in it waste away. The beasts of the field, the birds in the sky, the fish of the sea, it's all swept away. In other words, your beginning to give your love to other gods isn't just wrecking the religious part of your life, but it's wrecking what? It's wrecking everything is being wrecked by this. And if that wasn't bad enough, in Hosea's mind, the great tragedy with Israel is that she is dying of her own unfaithfulness and she doesn't even realize it. She's whoring after other gods, giving herself away and it's sapping her strength and she doesn't even understand that that is in fact what's happening. Look down at chapter 7 and verse 8. Ephraim, Hosea says, mixes with the nations. She's a flat loaf not turned over. Foreigners sap his strength. But what? But you don't get it. Like your life is falling to pieces and you just kind of think, well, wow, I'm just sort of suffering these random misfortunes. Foreigners sap his strength and he doesn't realize it. His hair is sprinkled with gray, but he doesn't notice. And Israel's arrogance testifies against him. But despite all this, he doesn't return to the Lord his God or search for him. 
Brothers and sisters, if this isn't a statement of the human condition, I don't know what is. That we have these lives that are rotting, that are falling to pieces, and we just sort of kind of go, well, I don't know, maybe it was just, uh, you know, it was COVID-19 did it to me, whatever it is, right? We blame it on other things. It's really our own unfaithfulness is sowing the seeds of corruption. It's literally killing us. Look down at chapter 13 and verse 4. I have been the Lord your God, the Lord says, ever since you came out of Egypt. You shall acknowledge no God but me, no Savior except me. And I cared for you in the wilderness, in the land of burning heat. And when I fed them, they were what? And when they were satisfied, they what? Became proud. And then they forgot me. Do you understand? This is the tragedy of our situation. Is that God has only ever, always, from the very beginning of our lives, He has only ever, always been coming alongside us to help us, to bless us, to feed us, to clothe us, to give us dignity, to make our lives count for something. And what we do is we take the strength and the dignity that God gives to us, and we go, well, that must have just been me, and I'm so amazing, and we wander away from the Lord. And so here's the Lord speaking to his people saying, you guys, don't you remember? Don't you remember when your lives were wasting away in Egypt? Don't you remember that? Don't you remember how Pharaoh was pulverizing you, grinding your life down to a powder? Don't you remember that? Don't you remember how there in that place you began to raise your voice to me and you cried out to me? And I came to that place. I came to your rescue. And I brought you up out of that land. And even in the thirsty, burning wilderness, the desert, I fed you and I found you water to drink. Every day I put bread on the floor of the desert and your clothes didn't wear out and your feet didn't swell. And all that time that I led you in the desert, you didn't lack anything because I'm trying to make your life good. And I led you into this land, this good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And I gave you leaders who reigned over you and the kingdom came together. And all of a sudden you, this ragtag group of slaves became one of the most honored nations on planet earth. Do you not remember that? And now all of a sudden you're doing what? But you're worshiping these other gods, Baal and Ashtoreth, the gods of the nations, the fertility deities. Somehow you think that they're the ones that are going to give you rain in due season and make the crops grow. I am the rain god. I am the ultimate fertility god. I am the very source and cause and ground of life. And you're worshiping these sham idols. What? And so the Lord says to his people in verse 9 of that same chapter, Hosea 13, 9, you are destroyed, Israel, because you are against me, against your guys. This is our God. This is our God. He's not some deity that's up in the sky just kind of throwing random requirements at us 
because he has certain predilections and certain tastes and all of that. And he's real particular about stuff. And so we're kind of walking on eggshells around God, you know. That's not the situation with our God. Our God calls himself our what? Our helper. Imagine that. Do you know, by the way, this is the same word that's used in Genesis 2 when it talks about, I will make a helper suitable for Adam. Think about that. That the Lord is saying, all I want to do is come alongside you and help you. (laughs) I want to fill your life with blessing. I want to fill it with goodness. I want to fill it with joy. What are the things that make you come alive? The things that bring you life? What are the passions and the dreams and the desires that you have in your heart? God's going, can I help with that? Would you let me be a part of your existence? I'm not, I'm not asking you to do some monkey dance for me. I'm asking you to give me room so that I can come in and what? And help you. <laughs> That's the God that we worship. Jesus says it so beautifully. Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you a big long list of requirements. That No. I will give you what? Rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is and my burden is. And Jesus is the God of Israel in human flesh. Would you just let me help you? Would you just let me help you? And what happens when we turn away from God? What happens when we worship idols? What happens when we give ourselves to other sources of strength, other sources of salvation, is that it causes a kind of corruption to set into our lives. I want to say it to you this way this morning, that sin is not just an act. But sin is a kind of corruption that gets down into the depths of our being. When When we turn away from our God, that's what happens to us, is that a kind of corruption sets loose in us, that we're perverted in the core of our being. And I have this conversation over and over all of the time with people who are not people of faith, because I fear sometimes that the worldview of what Christians think about God is so unhelpful that they'll never make their way into Christianity. I have this one friend I grew up with in church up in Wisconsin. He's now become an atheist. And we have this conversation all the time. It'll say to me, Andrew, like, I don't, it doesn't make sense to me. You know, like, part of the reason I cannot believe in God is because it doesn't make sense to me that there would be some being out there, some deity out there that would create human beings and put them on planet Earth and all this stuff and then would demand that they love him and obey him and worship him. And then if they don't do any of those things, that then he'll cast them into the lake of you know, the fiery pit of burning sulfur forever and ever. That, that, that to me just seems cruel. God in that picture just kind of seems like this sort of random, powerful, kingly figure up in the sky that just wants you to kind of do the monkey dance in front of him before he casts you out into the... He goes, I can't believe in a God like that. And I always, like I'm at pains to say to this friend of mine over and over and over again that I can't believe in that God either. <laughs> And in the scriptures, that is not the picture of God that we get. 
God is not just this powerful deity being up in the sky that just kind of says, now I've got all these rules that you need to follow and I've got this kind of like little thing that you need to do in front of me and if, if you just please me, then away with you, off with his head. That's not the way that our God is. In Scripture, the situation is not like that. You know what the situation is more like in Scripture? What God is more like? He's not like the heavenly potentate that just has very particular tastes. You know what God is really like in Scripture? It's more like if water could plead with us, drink me and live. And we decide not to drink the water, and then we shake our fist at the water that we're dying of thirst. That's more like what the situation is in Scripture. It's more like if air could plead with us, breathe me and live. And what we do is we go, well, you know, that was good for those people back then who lived in ancient times, who had very primitive views of God. But now in modern times, we know a lot better about how air works and how oxygen gets in the lungs and all that stuff. So I'm going to do it a different way. And we die of asphyxiation and we shake our fist at the air. It's more like that. It's more like if food could plead with us and say, eat me and live. And we decide not to eat the food and we die of hunger. And what do we do? We shake our fist at the foot. That's what happens in our relationship with God. And that's who God is for us. That God is not just one being rattling out there in the cosmos, but God is the very source of life, the ground of being. Jesus says in John 10, that the, John 10, 10, that the thief comes to steal and, and destroy, but I have come that they would have life and have it and we are called the bride of Christ. Do you know what that means? That means at the deepest and most fundamental level, what we are invited into is a conjugal relationship with life itself. Where that life pours into our being and makes us alive. And we become fruitful with life as a result. Jesus isn't asking us to do the religious monkey dance. What he's asking us to do is to love him and to honor him and to serve him and to worship him and to give our allegiance only and always exclusively to him so that what? So that we live. Jesus says, I'm the way and the truth and the, the life. And when we turn away from him and it corrupts our very lives, I think about some of the sad sad pastoral situations that I've stood in over the years and the personal situations that Mandy and I have stood in over the years where somebody begins to turn their attention, their allegiance to other gods and to other things. And by the way, in those centuries, the centuries when Hosea wrote, you know, the other gods had names like Baal and Ashtoreth. But in the 21st century, we don't, we're still idol worshipers. Calvin, the great reformer, said that the human heart is an idol factory. We keep inventing idols to worship. And so maybe they're not Baal and Ashtoreth, but what we worship now is we worship what? Money. Because we think that money will be our salvation. This will make us feel safe. So we give our hearts to money. That we worship sex. We worship power. We worship the nation state. We worship the Democratic Party. We worship the Republican Party. We worship beauty. We worship good looks. We worship all of these things and it corrupts our lives. And Mandy and I over the years have stood in so many situations where the worship began to break down in somebody's home. 
allegiance began to shift to other things. And all of a sudden, they're following other gods and their hearts are wayward. And what you see is that things start to crumble. I think about the homes where a mom or a dad committed an infidelity, wandered away. There was somebody on the side. And you begin to watch how the whole thing spins out of control. Brothers and sisters, think about what we saw in our nation over the last week. I mean, if that is an exhibit A on what happens when we lose our sense of who God is, I don't know what is. We begin to lose our whole sense of our humanness. Rottenness starts to set into our bones. And the thing that the scripture is always trying to say to us, the thing that Hosea is saying to us over and over and over again is that sin is not, I'll say it again here, that sin is not just an act. Put the slide back up on the screen. But sin is a kind of corruption. The sin is like an infectious disease that has worked deep into our flesh and it's destroying our humanity. But that's what sin is like. And when you think about sin in that way, it actually provides a powerful clue for thinking then about what it is that God is doing to try to bring us back to himself. If you have Bibles, flip back over to Hosea chapter 5. And with this, we'll begin to start making our way to communion. Hosea perceives that there's a sickness inside of Israel. That Israel's waywardness and Israel's wandering is actually corrupting her in her innermost. And the Lord says this on the lips of Hosea chapter 5 and verse 3. He says, I know all about Ephraim. Israel is not hidden from me. Ephraim, you've now turned to prostitution. Israel is, what's the word? Corrupt. Corruption is getting down into Israel. Their deeds don't permit them to turn to God. A spirit of prostitution is in their heart. They don't acknowledge the Lord. Israel's arrogance testifies against them. The Israelites, even Ephraim, stumble in their sin. Judah also stumbles with them. And when they go with their flocks and their herds to seek the Lord, they will not find him. Why? Uh, this is not rhetorical. I need you to talk back to me. Why won't they find him? Because he's withdrawn himself from them. Now, here's the really interesting thing. Here is Judah, Jerusalem, Ephraim. There's corruption. There's sickness at work. And they can feel it, right? Just like we all can feel it when. We've turned away from God in some way. We're not aligned with God the way that we should. And we sense that there is something deeply wrong with us, Right? We sense the sickness in our bones and in our bodies. We sense that there's corruption at work in our lives. So what then do the people of Israel and the people of Judah do? Well, they go, we know what can make this better. We're going to gather up a couple doves or a couple goats or a couple oxen or whatever, and we're going to go to the temple. And we're just going to make the sacrifices. So what we'll do is we'll get the priests to do the sacrifices. We'll make our little payment to Yahweh, and they'll burn the sacrifices on the altar, and maybe we'll get there, and we'll experience the presence of God. We'll get those gooey, fuzzy feelings that you get in worship sometimes, you know? We're going to go to church, is what we're going to do, because if we go to church, church will make it all better, and so they go, and they try to buy God off with their sacrifices and their offerings, and here's what they're hoping. They're hoping that God will wave a magic wand over all of the things that are in pain in their lives and magically make those places of pain disappear. Are you with me? 
And what does the Lord say to them? When you go with your sacrifices and your offerings to seek me in the temple, are they going to find me there? No, because why? I've withdrawn from that place. Well, where has God gone? Look at verse 12. Here's where God has gone. I, the Lord says, am like a moth to Ephraim, like rot to the people of Judah. I, what? Wait, what? Now, this is not how we are accustomed to thinking about God, is it? <laughs> we think about God as the one in whom we live and move and have our being, the inapproachable light who no one has seen or can see. Think about God the Father, God the Son, Jesus Christ, God the Holy Spirit. We have these images of God. But here is God saying, I'm tucking myself into a place in their experience where they might never think to look for me. I am like a moth to Ephraim, like rot to the people of Judah. Verse 13. And when Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah his sores, then Ephraim turned to Assyria and sent to the great king for help. But he is not able to cure you. And he's not able to what? Heal your sores. So they feel the pain in their body. They tried to get it fixed at the temple. When they couldn't get it fixed at the temple, what did they do? They turned to the other nations again. And the Lord says, they're trying. Listen to this. They're trying to get healed of me. I am like a moth to Ephraim, like rot to the people of Judah. Do you know what that Hebrew word for moth literally means? It's the Hebrew word ash. And here's what it means. It literally means we're being positive and encouraging this morning. Welcome to New Life East, everybody. You know, maggots or pus. So now think about this. They go to the temple to try to find God in the temple. And he says to get their sores healed. And the Lord says, you won't find me in the temple. Where are you actually going to find me? You're going to find me in the wound itself. Now, when I ran into that this week, I went, this is maybe the most absurd thing I have ever read in the Bible. But then you know, what happens when you put maggots in an infected wound? It eats away the diseased flesh. And do you know what pus is? Pus is a runoff of white blood cells that have been used up in the process of the body fighting off the infectious disease. <laughs> where is God in the place of pain? He might actually, in that place where it hurts, in that place where your unfaithfulness has created all kinds of problems for you, and that infectious disease feels like it's burning you down to the bones, where is God in that? It might just be that God is the process inside that wound that is cleaning the wound out. As unpleasant as it looks, you remember that Jesus said, Isaiah said of Jesus, that he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we would desire him. But he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. What if the presence of God in our lives is precisely that place that looks most disgusting and unbecoming? 
And God is at work inside of that, trying to restore our flesh to cleanness. What if God is the process inside of us that's actually waking us back up to integrity? What if the reason that there's pus on our flesh is because Jesus Christ, who is the body of our bodies, is actually waking up in us and pushing disease out of us? What if that's where God is? Maybe, maybe all of the pain and the craziness and the turmoil turmoil of your life and my life and even the church at large, which is in such a crazy place right now, maybe it's not an evidence that the covenant isn't working. Maybe it's an evidence that the covenant is working. Maybe. (laughs) Well, maybe it's an evidence that Jesus is coming for his bride in a way that she would never expect. Come on, let's stand this morning, brothers and sisters. And so we give our hearts to you, Lord Jesus. We yield to your good presence. We yield to your good presence. We are so sorry for the many ways in which we've wandered away from you. The many ways in which we've worshipped other gods and we've given our hearts to lovers beside the one lover of our soul. We are sorry for that. And we make this our prayer before you this morning. We say, most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We haven't loved you with our whole hearts. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent for the sake of your son, Jesus Christ. Have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. And so we say this morning, and I say to you, New Life East, that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. I say to you this morning that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who brings life has set us free from the law of sin and death. I'm saying to you this morning that if anybody is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. If you can receive those things this morning, give God praise. We're going to sing this song of worship in response, and then Pastor Collins is going to lead us to the table.
elements in front of you. You can unwrap them. In this moment, would you just hold them in front of you like this? And, and we're going to begin to open your heart to the Lord this morning. And think about that wound that you're carrying. Would you think about the hurt that has happened to you, what you have walked through? And it's a great mystery of our faith that we learned this morning with how God comes and He invades it and He uses it. What we hold in our hands here is the evidence and the proof that this is true. Would you proclaim the mystery of our faith together that Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. God, we give you thanks, Lord that we can come to the table forgiven. Lord, I thank you that you feed us, Lord, with your body, Lord. This bread and this cup represents that. Thank you for receiving us. God, we confess, Lord, that we have sinned against you. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and the cup after he'd given thanks, he broke it and said that this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. My friends, this is the gift of God for the people of God. Would you take the bread and eat together? You may take the cup together. Let's respond with singing.
isn't God good, family? He's coming for us. He is coming for us. When God promises himself, when God promises himself to us, he does it with promises that cannot be broken. He's coming for us. So lift up your hands like this and receive this benediction as you go. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you as he has already in Jesus Christ, <laughs> the bridegroom. And may he give you his peace. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, grace, mercy, and peace be with you. Why, thanks. If you need prayer for anything, I'm going to invite the altar ministry to come down front to pray for you. If you're new with us, we've got a gift for you. Remember to stop at Connect Central. Stay warm. Stay safe. You are loved. We'll see you next Sunday.